But I know in Europe, you know, you might literally just, you know, peasant might just literally be something you call someone as they're a little bit uncultured or whatever, right? It might be used as, as an insult. This probably goes back to like, you know, the old feudal aristocracy versus farmers and with the city dwellers having illusions that they're basically aristocracy or maybe even better than aristocrats in some ways. I'm Christina Hudson Kohler an egg processing manager living in Syracuse, New York, and you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today we talk with Samo Buria, who is a sociologist and lover of history that is a prolific writer. I have been reading Samo's work for several months and find him to be an amazing thinker. So we sat down in this interview to talk about why some civilizations thrive and others just crumble and fall away. He has some very interesting points about technologies that have been lost over time and how the value of of mentorship is one of those things that we've lost, but it is one of the only ways to pass on deep amounts of information. We also get into a little bit edgy of a conversation about the Catholic Church and how it endured despite none of its uh, participants being able to have children. And finally, we wrapped up with Samo's somewhat controversial take that agriculture has been around for a lot longer than 10,000 years, which to me is a mind-blowing concept, which was fun to talk about with him. Samo is an extraordinary guy, and I'm really glad that you're here to check out this podcast. We're going to head to the interview, but before we do, if you've been a longtime listener of the podcast, you know I talk about the Articulate Ventures Network, which was a group that I started during COVID because we were all stuck in our homes, and listeners of the podcast wanted a way to support what I was doing. Instead of just putting a hat out, I decided I would start this digital neighborhood and it has grown into a community of people that want to get together and talk about interesting ideas, practice getting better at speeches, holding book nights, uh, uh, book club nights and movie nights, just getting together and having the sorts of conversations that we were told the internet was going to let us have. And yet we don't get to do very often in those uh, free mediums like Facebook and Twitter. So if you've been looking for a place to join a community where they're going to be interested in what it is that you have to say and can have discourse without all of the negative emotions, you ought to consider joining the Articulate Ventures Network. And you can do that by going to network.articulate.ventures. I hope you'll check it out. And now on to my interview with Samo Buria. Samo Buria, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, great to be here with you. You know, um, I was actually in the field of sociology in college. My father was absolutely adamant that I not make that the only thing I studied. And the more I got into it, the more I became disillusioned. It seemed like uh, the mushiest of all sciences and kind of just people's hypothesis. So when I encountered uh, you and your work and the work of your colleague, Ben Landu Taylor, I have been shocked that you are bringing a whole lot of life back to sociology. So as we begin... What is your definition of sociology and how in the world did you get so uh, deeply into this field? I almost went into the field against my wishes. I started sort of uh, in a more STEM education, physics background, but I had a strong interest in history and especially a strong uh, interest in, say, the history of science and other institutions that mattered for knowledge production. That almost inevitably pushed me 
to try to, you know, first think about organizations, institutions, but also ask some questions about our own society. How do we process knowledge? How do we accumulate knowledge? Why is it that societies seem to eventually fail and decay, right? It seems to be an unusual fact that, you know, all civilizations sooner or later decay and fail. Uh, that's not a given. We could have easily lived in a universe of like, you know, unrelenting steady progress. In fact, many people think we live in that universe, despite all the evidence to the contrary. For the definition of sociology, I'm just being very practical here. I almost don't care about the academic field. There are many good authors in it. However, sociology properly is the study of society as a whole and, you know, everything that is done uh, with people by people. So I think it includes obviously political science, economics, anthropology, and several other fields. It's one of the sins of, I think, contemporary academia to over-specialize whether or not it's appropriate for the subject matter, right? Like the, it's, it's rewarded career-wise. And then in some domains, this is appropriate, and in others, it isn't. It fragments the subject matter. Yeah, and I think in a field like sociology, just like... Um if you're trying to study nutrition, right? You're actually talking about incredibly abstract things. People oftentimes, I think, put dietitians in this vaulted category that they know about food, but really you have to know about human physiology. You have to know about biochemistry. You have to know about exercise. You have to know about all of these things. And if you overlook any one of the domains, the hole is so large in your theory of knowledge as to be almost uh, unusable. But in order to be a field in academia, you you're right. People force this specialization that's, that that when you look at it from a little ways away, it, it, it becomes um, absurd almost. Well, yes, especially since it's a holistic, you know, you have to have a holistic perspective. So many systems are running in parallel. If you consider, say, the human body and say, you know, nutrition or medicine, so many processes running simultaneously, all of them affecting each other. And then if you look at human society, isn't that an apt description of human society as well? Or heck, even a single organization. Um, and I think that then we also have the problem with experimentation. You know, you know, um, medical experiments have to have intricate ethics committees, social experiments. You know, I think we don't run that many. And it's kind of impossible to imagine a society that could just run other societies as experiments. That doesn't work at all. So you're stuck with a methodology that I think is closer to geology, right? In geology, we don't create a new planet. We don't run new experiments with planets. What do we instead do? We dig up the rocks. We think about them. We think how they got there. We hypothesize where we're going to find, you know, different kinds of rocks and we go out and we dig again. And because of this methodology, often, you know, the greatest advances in geology came from people at the periphery of the academic world, right? The theory of continental drift is a young theory proposed in the 20th century by, I think, a South African uh, geologist because he was out there digging rocks. Meanwhile, his colleagues in geology and in, in say Harvard or London or elsewhere, well, they were much more interested in theory and they were much more interested in catalogs of other people's work. So the analogy here would be, and maybe I'm biased because of my strong interest in history, is that I think we should just study this, you know, fossil record that we have, not just of animal, plant life, and everything else, but of past civilizations, past societies. How did they build their cities? How did they approach farming? Uh, how did the first human communities come together? Uh, what is the difference, you know, between say 
you know, an Ottoman imperial system with the Sultan on top or the Chinese one uh, and all of this stuff. I think it used to have a healthy tradition in its own right in the Western world. Um, and I could say more about that possibly later. But for various reasons, I think that approach is, is disfavored right now. So you talked about, uh, you know, looking at how cities form and how clusters of people come together, essentially, whether that's in just their small tribes or it's scaling out to being civilization wide. I think one of the challenges of having a conversation with just a normal person on the street is our level of understanding about history really comes down to at most 19, 20, 30 hours of, of Western civilization knowledge, and that's if you've gone right. to college. When you look around at the, at the study of history, how could somebody ever wrap their arms around it uh, so that they would feel confident that they say, well, the, my, my understanding of how the world got to where we are is full enough for me to have a picture that's, that's uh, worthwhile? I mean, it's an interesting... It's an interesting challenge. I would propose that, you know, the so-called T-shaped expert is the right way to do it. So you have a very shallow knowledge of many, many areas and a deep specialization in one of them, maybe in two of them. So what I would recommend for people who want to have this kind of um, orienting, casual or sense-making understanding of history is to, you know, first study one or two periods, not even periods, like one or two countries in a particular period or one and two great institutions in a particular period, right? Perhaps, uh, you know, the medieval Catholic church strikes up your interest. Uh, you know, perhaps, you know, if it's, if it's an interest in your own country's history, Abraham Lincoln's presidential administration and the evolution of the presidency in the 19th century strikes up your interest. Uh, perhaps, you know, the Hundred Years' War is remarkably interesting. And there's almost, you know, an infinity of material that you can mine from the Hundred Years' War. What does it include? It would, for example, include, you know, the sociology of the formation of religious movements, right? Jean d'Arc. It would uh, talk about modern state formation, right? As both the French and the English monarchy are competing, which can mobilize more troops, which can impose better systems of taxation. Uh, people today might not realize, but during the Hundred Years' War, what we today think of as France and what we today think of as England England actually had a much smaller population. If the reason it could keep pace is because ironically, England, the king in England was a stronger force, a stronger political force than the king in France. Today, of course, our associations are the opposite, but that's because the lesson the French took from the Hundred Years' War was that you absolutely need a strong monarchy uh, to win wars because otherwise you're going to get carved up by foreign pretenders. And I could keep on going, right? I could talk about cities. I could talk about the formation of nationality. And that's just the Hundred Years' War. And of course, even you know the US presidency in the 19th century might seem narrower. But to understand what they're thinking, suddenly you have to know things about, you know, uh, Quaker culture, how the Puritans settled the world, the new world, uh, the classics that they're referencing all the time, the biblical references that they're referencing all the time. Otherwise, you can't read primary sources. You don't understand them. You don't comprehend them. Um, so my my advice would be to understand the mechanics of history, observe both the modern world and at least one really distinct example, like a society that's significantly different, right? And then after that, do a casual reading. Like the casual reading will inform you as to events, 
the deep study will inform me as to, you know, the mechanics of human nature, of like power, of like economic development. And I think you need both. You have been working on a, I don't know, it's a, a theory, right? It's the great founder theory that you've been writing in a manuscript. And it is absolutely phenomenal how uh, many different angles that you've carved away from it. And the, one of the most important things I think you talk about in this article is about how you have, well, first, why don't I let you explain the great founder theory for, for people that haven't read it? And then we'll, we'll go into some of my um, comments about it. Yeah, a great founder theory can be properly understood as a variant of the so-called great man theories, which are, you know, deeply sort of unpopular today. Uh, they're not investigated. In the 19th century, people really liked them, possibly because of the instructive example of Napoleon, right? Like, look at Napoleon. It's impossible to say this man did not shape history. If you say everything done in Europe during the Napoleonic Wars was overdetermined by socioeconomic forces, you're just wrong, right? <laughs> Maybe the conditions right for a Napoleon were inevitable, sure. But like the exact person with his, uh, you know, adventures in Egypt, with the reform of the legal code, with the uh, reintroducing um, an imperial title, crowning yourself emperor after there was just a revolution to depose an absolute monarch. I'm sorry, those things very much were not overdetermined, right? That's that's a revolution in the classical sense where you return to where you started. Yet all of France, you know, supported him. They were interested in him. So. Does, is great founder theory just great man history? No, it's not. There's one key distinction. Uh, I believe that institutions vastly outlive their founders and they have a vastly stronger impact on history than any sort of direct action could have. So say a successful general can conquer and conquer and conquer, but they might not be a great founder if they don't set up either a new system of military in organization, or if they don't set up and enforce a new code of law, or if they don't, um, you know, build uh, build various kinds of society changing infrastructure and so on, or you know, say advance a new religion. So some conquerors that we might know from history, some of these great individuals, great artists, great scientists, I think their contribution to mankind is invaluable. But unless they participated in institution creation and building, uh, they're not the subject of my theory. And I don't think they determine the big course and flow of history, right? A different religion or a different state or a different system of law. Just imagine plopping that down anywhere in Europe, in, the Amer in Mesoamerica, in Asia, and you tell me that history will go the same way. It really won't, right? Like the rise and falls of empires are perhaps in a way inevitable, but which empire rises and when an empire falls, that's not inevitable. Um, what are the social norms religions promote? That's not inevitable, right? You might, for example, uh, change the way we think of family. You know, today uh, we, we in the Western world don't think highly of cousin marriage, but there are many cultures where that is considered preferable. Since you know that if you go to business with cousins and distant relations, uh, they have no real incentive, you know, to betray you. They have a reason to cooperate with you. And this is quite rational. It's a rational economic choice in a lower trust society, in a society that's higher trust, where you can, you know, do business with people who are initially strangers, but hopefully eventually become friends. I actually think that they do have to become friends. Um, it, it, there's a small point I'm going to make here. I think in a, in a small way, 18th and 19th century business business culture 
was healthier than modern business culture. There's a reason that, um, you know, um, you know, when, when in 19th century fiction, right, when Scrooge is visited by ghosts of Christmas, past, present, future, all of that, the person who's minding his soul is his former business partner, right, who passed away. Like, that's a detail we miss today. Today, we wouldn't write it that way. It would be a past love, uh, you know, like Dante's Beatrice or whatever, or a distant love. Uh, it might be a relative. It wouldn't be your business partner. And I think it's uh, it's very important that people still considered uh, business, you know, a business relationship, you know, in a 17th, 18th century Protestant context, that still means doing God's work, God's work with other people who are in the same community as you are. Right. And I think well, we kind of, we kind of lost that mildly transcendent perspective of the social technology. And if you try to define business partnerships only by narrow self-interest, I would argue they're too fragile. You uh, you talk a lot about social technology in your writing and many interviews mm -hmm. I've heard you say, which are like the types of technologies or the the things that allow societies to behave. And to your point about business relationships needing to be friendships in the past, there was some limit to how far yes. your relationships could go because you just couldn't meet enough people. A letter could only go as far as you could find people to carry it for you. Uh, you know, your the number of people that you encountered on a given day were always around just based on whatever your geography was. And that's when concepts like the Dunbar number become you know deeply important because mm -hmm. you have to have a number of social relationships. There's a limit to the number of social relationships that you can have and the number of people that know who you are. Your reputation is uh, far more important in those scenarios. You can't just pick up and leave and, and become transient. And it's something that modern humans probably have a difficult time wrapping their mind around if somebody doesn't point it out to them because it's so ubiquitous in our culture that I could just pick up the phone and call anyone anywhere I wanted as long as I have their number. Well, we have an illusion that we can maintain an infinite number of meaningful relationships. And we mostly maintain this illusion by having very few relationships and maintaining the optionality for many, many of them. However, you know, optionality cannot be consummated. You know, you can't make use of it. You can't grow out of it. Uh, only what is actual, what is actualized, what comes into existence. So I'm going to say, you know, even on my face, you know, on my Facebook account, you know, I like all my Facebook friends, but let's be honest, the term Facebook friend, you know, I feel Twitter follower is a much more honest phrase than Facebook friend. Once you're at 6,000 people, you know, these aren't all your friends. They don't know what's going on. At best, they're people who are like acquaintances, who are somewhat interested in you, who maybe want to see your, you know, a picture of you getting married, or maybe want to read your article or something like this. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that type of social relationship. It's just that, you know, the, um, the full meaning of the social technology of friendship is perhaps one that's eroded over time, right? Uh, there, it's it's like an emotional and a logistical thing, and it was very important for civil society back in the day. Uh, there's one there's a reason that some political theorists refer to republics as communities of friendship. Now, I think that's a different sense and a different meaning of it. Uh, but there is there is something to this, you know, non kin cooperation that you see. Uh, but to say address something that I think you alluded to in the questions, like something that's like a little bit, um, a little bit more broad, general, important, social technologies, right? When I mentioned religions, state formation, when I went into this discussion on the nature of friendship, these are all social norms that our culture 
but they're not arbitrary culture. They have a mechanical effect, right? So I think I like the term social technology rather than the term culture, because I think in contemporary discourse and thought, we perceive culture as empty flavoring or coloring where it doesn't change anything, but actually it deeply matters, right? It deeply matters what your code of, codes of laws are, what your ethical intuitions are, um, what mechanisms you use to resolve disputes, you know, is your society oriented around market production or gift economies or, you know, command and control economies. All of these things produce very, very different societies. And there's a way in which societies must be a certain way to support certain, certain material technologies. So there is an overlap between material and social technologies. They shape each other over time. Yeah, you know, the your comment about culture being misunderstood in society, I have several times taken Stuart Brand's concept of pace layering and showed it to people. And one of the hangups that I realized people had when I would show it to them is that on the base layer of the pace layering. So basically, for anybody that's ever seen this, it's saying, what rate do things change? And on it's mm -hmm. just essentially um, imagine um, circles that run outside of each other. So on the top layer, the 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 surface would be fashion and it's going really fast and it goes in all these weird directions right underneath it is commerce then infrastructure then governance then culture then nature and i think most of the time when people are looking at that pace layering and they see culture down there they confuse it for the fashion layer which is yes. the things that make up like what does it feel like to live in this culture what kind of clothes do we wear what kind of uh things are we into what movies are we watching what music is hot right now not understanding that 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 word culture what he's trying to capture there as best as i can tell is what is the mode with which you understand how you are to interoperate with other human beings? And the reason that changes so slowly is if you move and, and each time you go down a layer, the, the layers move slower like a clock or gears. And on the on that base layer of culture. Anytime one of those things moves quickly, things have gone horribly wrong. It is not stable. Things don't get produced in the chaotic eras of, of culture change, at least on its face, not, not by default if you make large changes. Yeah, I think um, one of the correct ways to say think of a period like the Renaissance isn't the discarding of the old, it's the revival rebuilding of the old, right? There's a harmonious evolution that you see from the 13th to the 16th century out of this concept of, you know, man is created in the image of God, you know, man should, you know, be developing all of these virtues. And then a rediscovery, a literal rediscovery of the heritage of antiquity, of Greek texts that were never translated into Latin, suddenly making their way first into Latin. And then, you know, the new languages of Europe, like German and Italian and French and Spanish. And that produces together a revolution of thought um, that we think of today as the Renaissance, right? Sometimes there are fun examples where there are statues literally dug up uh, from the ancient world, like beautiful, realistic marble statues with depictions of like, you know, uh, chiseled into the marble. There's the, the, the image of like, you know, cloth wrinkling and lying on a human arm or a leg. And then they find these statues, they're amazed. They try to make replicas, they kind of fail. They succeed at making replicas and then they go on and they do their own motifs. And we have beautiful things like, uh, you know, the David or, or so on.
Right. Yeah, and, and we as humans also have this weird concept, and you mentioned you uh, this at the beginning, that human progress always happens. We don't realize how much a civilization can be built up, that they can learn and have as shared knowledge, but if they don't find a way to pass it on regularly, then that knowledge goes away. So the kind of canonical example being people forgetting how to make concrete for hundreds of years between when they had it in Rome and on into the rest of civilization or how close they got to making the toilet and then having that go away too. And once you lose those technologies, which sounds weird, how could you lose a technology? Then it's just gone and you have to rediscover it in some way. Well, yeah. And especially with regard to Roman concrete, uh, you might, you might know this already, but Roman concrete was made with volcanic ash in a specific mix that allowed it to endure seawater very well. There are still ports in Italy that maintain, you know, Roman concrete. If you try to do this with modern concrete and hope that it lasts for 2000 years, you'll be sorely disappointed. The Roman concrete had a minor self-healing property where it would leach minerals through the seawater and so on. And modern concrete, well, it just erodes and crumbles over time. Um, they only recently recreated a recipe that has some of the same formula. But think about that. Not only was, you know, not only did they have concrete, they had concrete that was better than ours. Granted, relying on a supply of volcanic ash, sure. But the supply didn't run out. You know, Mount Etna and Vesuvius and all of that, they're still uh they're still doing their thing, you know, as the ruins of Pompeii attest. So let's talk a little bit about how uh, great founder theory turns into institutions, right? So you have mm -hmm. a leader at the top that has a vision. They are able to bring together a group of people to start enacting that vision. But the way it turns into an institution is if they find a way to pass on both the explicit and the implicit knowledge. Like, what, like technically, how do you do this? But then what yes. about all those things that you can't possibly write down? So right. describe this a little bit more in detail for people. What, what is the challenge to making a bureaucracy that endures? Yeah, just a little bit of a correction. Uh, the great founder doesn't need to start at the top. Sometimes they even start at the middle or at the bottom of the old society. But otherwise, your description is correct. They inspire, organize, uh, draw together people into a new mode of living, either very narrow like a military process or very wide like a whole new religion. Um, and then this, this causes a terraformation of society. But the succession problem you described, that one is very difficult. No one ever fully understands what, you know, what is our origin, right? Sure, sure, you know human origins, maybe you know what your family is, you know, maybe even when your religion was founded, maybe you know things about your nationality, things about your childhood, but you know, you're never going to recreate the set of experiences that went into making you. The, the the essence either. So what you're doing is essentially picking and choosing what is the enduring and essential institution, uh, a feature of this institution, right? What are the virtues you can't skip over? What are the skills you can't skip over? What are the mechanisms you, you, you can't skip over? And how do I make this very transmittable? You know, um, my company is, is uh, named after a statesman I greatly admire. My company is called Bismarck Analysis, but I'm going to actually critique Bismarck. One of the most important critiques of this 19th century statesman, you know, he basically created what we would think of as the modern state, is that he created a foreign policy so brilliant and intricate that no one could possibly wield it except him. So 
part of the genius of good succession is creating something that is functional and simple enough to transmit. Even if you're capable of creating a greater artwork, a greater science, a greater company, pause to consider, will I be able to hand this on? And if I won't be able to hand it on, well, am I okay with this being an effect on society for one generation? Maybe I am. There are some institutions that should only last one generation. Uh, but uh, if you're hoping for a deeper, wider reform, well, you know, that's going to take a while. And again, I think um, the perspectives here often are, are quite explicit, right? You know, uh, you, religion is always tricky to talk about, but, you know, if you, if you look at the New Testament and, and Jesus's message, it's definitely intended to be something that slowly transforms all of society, even if only a small number of people ever became Christian. Or if you say, read Confucius, right, who's more a philosopher, um, he, his perspective is that there's a slow outward radiation of the right way of being, of the right way of living, uh, go, starting with, say, filial piety and continuing with this, uh, you know, service to the common good in the state and so on. Um, and we could give other examples as well, such as, you know, Plato's thoughts on how society might be reformed or improved. So this long-term perspective exists in people because I think people can't help but care about the biggest things. So if you care about the biggest things, why don't you try to you know, plant seeds you know, that grow into oaks? Still, let's talk now about the concretes of succession. I said you have to pick and choose what is worthy of transmission. Um, I think that one of the strongest, strongest uh, recommendations I have is the equivalent of a master-apprentice relationship in say medieval European guilds or in say martial arts contexts, because in that case, if you establish an imitation between student and teacher, this imitation goes beyond the explicit, right? The way you move a hand when you grab a tool. It's one of the reasons that these so-called tacit skills that are difficult to put into words still matter. Even if you're doing something like the practice of law, where you might think, oh, this is all explicit. No, no, no. The way you discuss problems with your colleagues, right? The way you ask your clients for information. These are things about verbal behavior that you just can't describe in words. It would be an explosion of words. You would need 100 words to describe what you're doing with 10 words and 10,000 words to describe what you're doing with a with a th with a hundred words and so on, it will be exponential. Um, so some things have to be transmitted just through observation, imitation, and importantly, also correction. If those are internalized successfully and deeply, I think interesting things can happen. Important about the master apprentice relationship isn't just imitation between you know teacher and student and all of that. It isn't just the uh, opportunity to closely observe someone at work. It is also the apprentice is exposed to similar constraints and problems as the teacher is, right? They're doing the same type of business. Look, they're not just bringing you coffee, though they might start by bringing you coffee. You have to give them the same type of work that you do, menial or not, and let them succeed or fail at it. And if that happens, then, you know, incentives, instead of being something you're trying to shield your successor from, become your allies in molding your successor. They, I could give some other historical examples of how this has worked. Um, like beyond that, uh, that approach, there's also the question of, there's also the question of where do you recruit from, right? Like the job, 
that you leave someone might not be the same job you started off with. You know, if you uh, are recruiting for a successor, uh, for a company that started off as just you and your friends, but now is like 50,000 people or 5,000 people, well, maybe, you know, searching in the same corners of society that you search for your friends initially, maybe that won't work. Sometimes it might, but maybe it won't. Yeah, I think about this because you, you've been transformed through the process of running your company. I think about this in the uh, in the challenge of um, a lot of the industry groups that have come up, particularly in agriculture. So I, I work in this space. I go to talk to a lot of farm bureaus, a lot of co-ops. And the challenge that they have is the people that were there to build the original institution the farming itself is different and the needs of that institution are different. And you can't just say like, oh, well, let's just uh, let's just hire from within because you may not have the skills from within to be able to um, make the organization adaptable enough to change so that they can adapt to the new circumstances. But then also going outside brings in a new problem because now you may actually be changing the core focus or vision of the group. Whoever you put in as the leader may not want to do the same thing that the organization was doing there before. So you kind of have that, uh, what is it? Thuc it's No, it's not a Thucydides trap. It's the it's the ship, right? Where you replace all of the- of Theseus. Theseus, that's right. And like, how many parts can you replace in an organization and still have it be the same? And I think that modern society is really grappling with this problem because society has changed around them so quickly that to figure out, do we need to have more apprentices? Do we need to go outside to find the next person? How do we propagate this organization without losing it? I honestly feel that we have grappled with it, but it's not an impossible challenge. There are societies that do a decently better job of it, even in an industrial context. Um, and I, but I'll be honest, I think we, we suffer for having few good ways of solving this problem, right? I think, for example, um, deindustrialization in Northern England or the American Rust Belt would have been much milder had there been a desire to find people who wish to figure out how to do industry in the societal context that they found themselves in, rather than say people who perhaps came in from a more financial background to whom offshoring seemed as attractive as building domestically, right? Now, to be fair, either can turn a profit, but arguably you're running a very different organization depending on what your goal is. 1950s, the CEO of General Motors would say, you know, what's good for General Motors is good for America, and what's good for America is good for General Motors. There are a few companies today that can make that boast. Um, and the, the interesting aspect of this as well to me is, let's look at Japan, right? In Japan, uh, there's a practice called mukuyoshi, which is a son-in-law adoption. This means that, you know, whoever is the head of the family and the head of the industrial conglomerate sort of picks around for a talented business leader, someone who seems, you know, ambitious, hungry, has good skills, has good values. And then they marry him off to their daughter. The person when they marry the daughter take on the old family name. So that's why it's called son-in-law adoption. Not only do you get a son-in-law, son, the son-in-law adopts your family name. And you know, many companies that are household names today, at one point in their history, had this method of succession, like including Toyota, right? 
So this was a practice in 20th century Japanese corporations. You can probably see why this wouldn't work in most Western countries, right? People, you know, usually don't get to choose or influence who their daughter marries if they have a daughter. Uh, the idea of, you know, someone sort of changing their last name and then being, you know, truly taken up into the father-in-law's business. Well, okay, maybe that can happen, but uh, I don't see it happening that much. And when the rest of society looks on and looks at this, well, if it's a small family business, everyone approves. But if it was a company like Toyota, no one would approve. We would consider it, you know, nepotistic or corrupt or something like this. We would assume that, oh, you know, this useless, you know, son-in-law is being promoted just because of the daughter and it's, it's private benefit. And this is such a big company with so many employees. Surely we can do something better. Uh, but the idea of like choosing your romantic partner on the basis of that competence, that that I feel is is also different from our conception of marriage. And I don't think we should, you know, or at least contemporary. I'm not saying we should adopt Mukuyoshi, but I'm giving Mukuyoshi as an example of a social technology in Japan, in an industrial society that uh, alleviates the succession problem, right? And we should we should consider what our equivalents might be. What would be our innovations that could work in such a way? Well, and we have this in Western society, in, and it's become a, a very deep problem, right? Like you talked about social technology of having a religion or, you know, the way you're setting up government. But all religions, one of the very, very first things that they talk about is this is how you're going to hand down your property after yes. you've had children. And the idea that, um, well, we've somehow transcended this. We can just use government laws to tell you how this is going to go, or we'll let each decision be made by the individual. And all of a sudden you realize the things that were binding families together at one time are now ripping them apart where you could have people that uh, were conjoining their, their resources, trying to figure out how to maximize the little that they had. And now they're fighting over it. And I think a lot of these cultural practices that could seem abhorrent to us now do so because we've lost the context under which they were in. And uh, in a society where violence was much, much more likely, the idea that you didn't have inheritance already figured out before the children are born, it would be odd. Right. And I have to say that, you know, there's some social critique that I could give here, which is that, you know, if you think of something like primogeniture, right, primogeniture means the first son inherits everything. This wasn't just true of kingdoms. This was true of like, you know, farms or companies and so on. So I'm going to say, you know, we know our society is so much more advanced because we've replaced inheritance by the first son with inheritance by lawyers. <laughs> really exactly. consider exactly. if you have several children and you have a significant, you know, you have a modest fortune or a significant fortune, how much of it do you expect will go to lawyers who your, who your kids will fight, hire to fight each other? Now, it might seem more civilized than, you know, a good battle axe, but a lawyer is can be just as expensive and just as destructive. And there's an industry in a way that, that benefits off of this. A comparison could also be made to uh, divorce law and divorce lawyers and so on. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying this to be just cynicism for cynicism's take, but to say that, you know, we have solved far fewer of these problems than we pretend to. We are very proud that, you know, obviously it's kind of arbitrary and strange that the first child should be privileged over the other ones. But what if the first child being privileged over the other ones actually was a simple way to prevent them fighting each other, 
right? Possibly leading to the destruction of the family wealth and so on. And, you know, that, that is a, that is an aspect we don't think about. Well, and this brings up my hypothesis that I've been uh, itching to bring up with you, which is one of the things that happens in cultures that survive, or at least as I look around, and I have a limited view, but um, is that you have one group of people that are charged with uh, genetic propagation. They have children. And then there always seems to be a small group of people that are charged with mimetic propagation. This is how our culture works. And oftentimes those people are selected out and they are not supposed to be a part of the breeding pool. They aren't adding children. And this would be the example of, let's say, the Catholic Church, right, who I've heard you say before, one of the Catholic social innovations was instead of just being focused on your kin, as in who you were related to, now you want to be focused on who uh, who is a brother in Christ. So now we're all working together and you've got a larger social system, but now you need some of the people to be, who are the ones that are propagating, like how our rituals Mm -hmm. work, who, who gets married, how does, um, how do different disputes get settled out? And then the ones that are having children. And I would say that it's not just the Catholics that didn't let their priests marry. This goes on in Norse cultures where they have seers. You have, um, uh, Buddhist cultures, which have their own group of people that separate out Chinese culture, which has eunuchs. Is this a social technology that has been lost to time that we run a very real risk that we may not be able to pass down our society our civilizational knowledge if we don't have this group of people that gave up the ability to propagate genetically and now are propagating memes? Well, I think that there's a very real way in which the dispersal and the concentration of interests is one of the key variables that social technology shifts. And few are as as fundamental as, say, giving up a certain companionship or giving up offspring, right? So celibacy, certainly, it's a very powerful social technology, and it's been used very productively. I will say, however, that, uh, you know, in the modern, in the modern context, right, in the modern context, I think that there is a lot of a fertility depression of despair. Now, we have this thing called a demographic transition where societies, once they become wealthy, tend to have fewer children. Usually what happens in all the societies that have become quite wealthy and industrialized so far, the result is sub-replacement fertility. You know, the, the people in this society aren't dedicating themselves to mimetic transfer. I think they're just failing to propagate. So as long as we make a distinction of um, a dedication in an institutional context where you're basically, you know, the church is your family or the monastery is your family, right? Like that type of dedication uh, versus, say, uh, you know, just an individualized sort of mild failure, right, uh, to propagate. And the only reason why I'm pointing this nuance out is it's not to undercut your point at all, but just to remind people that we are in an era of it's not yet visible, but I think we are in an era of global population uh, decline, where fertility basically all over the world, except for Africa, is below replacement. Even places like India, you have entire provinces. It hasn't even gotten rich yet, but there are entire provinces with sub-replacement fertility. And you know, India's you know vast country, 1.5 billion people, according to latest count, it's probably going to hit like a little below 2 billion and it's never gonna go above 2 billion. Uh, China is already in population decline as well. So 
you know, there's eras of demographic expansion and eras of demographic contraction. And there are eras of, you know, range expansion and range contraction. Um, so I think different social technologies thrive in different contexts. I think the priestly celibacy technology works exceptionally well in two environments. One is a highly urbanized environment where you need to take people out of social life to retain what truly matters. So that would be, say, the court, you know, again, court eunuchs in China or whatever. Um, or, you know, if you think about uh, the hierarchy of the Catholic Church at the very center of like, you know, various places in, in Europe. Um, and the other context is a context of economic contraction where what you are trying to do is dedicate your energies to the replacement of something. And I think that expresses itself less in an urban environment and more in a monastic environment. So if I were thinking of celibacy, I would be like, okay, it can be a tool in large hierarchical organizations that exist in a dense social context of many dynasties competing. How could you possibly be neutral if the papacy was just another dynasty? Right. The papacy was powerful precisely because it wasn't just another dynasty. It wasn't just, you know, a French king or an Anglican king or whatever. You know, they would start eventually competing uh, because it was not a dynasty in a context dominated by dynasties that gave it a kind of neutrality and trustworthiness. Though, of course, it still pursued its own interests, um, you know, not just the will of God, um, however they interpreted it. M monasteries, though, I feel are things that are secluded from the world where they construct alternate communities and they dedicate themselves to particular to particular modes of life and it's essentially the case that you know instead of supporting their family they support the monastery and it's the monastery that then supports the continuation of the social technology one way to think of a monastery is that you know you talked about Dunbar's number earlier how would you expand Dunbar's number in practice. Well, one way to do it is to make everyone kind of uniform and kind of predictable. What if we all rose at the same time and went to bed at the same time? What if we all ate our meals together that were cooked communally? What if we all wore the same clothes? What if we all had the same allowed list of possessions? Wait, that starts to sound like a monastery or a prison. The difference being a monastery is voluntary and you know a prison is not. Uh, so a, a super scaling of a household is the monastery. So in an era of economic contraction, technological simplification, like the early dark ages, the monastery, the super scaled household can take onto itself, you know, a lot of the functions that a functioning city would have because it's vastly stronger. It's not a household of 10 people. It's a household of a hundred people, of 200 people, right? And uh, that that's how I would break it up, right? It's sort of neutrality through celibacy or uh, investment in a in a super uh, in a super household that is then the super household is the one trying to maintain knowledge and so on. There's a third category, I guess, of the of the hermit. But I would say that the hermit, again, not having a family, and you know, going back to the village and doing you know whatever the hermit's preaching is, I think that's also read by people as a sign of neutrality. You're not just trying to install your kids above us. You're trying to play. You're trying to be a prophet, basically.
The interesting thing about uh, the Catholic Church, right, the mm-hmm. the monasteries, to your point, ended up being their own little enclaves where you now have a diversity of ideas, right? This is where the Jesuits yes. came from. This is where different schools of thought pop up that are not necessarily against the papacy. They have to walk a line where they don't get just smashed out, but they're able to create some sort of diversity there. And then you have what in modern days is, you know, the diocesan priests, which mm-hmm. were, you know, allowed to um, interact mix in the society the church became as to your point the the family and it's an interesting thing because the catholics were able to keep a centralization of their resources in a way that the protestants weren't once in my reading of history once the ministers were allowed to marry because now yep. you create like a competition right the pastor isn't just the pastor of the church he now has his own family literal family to look after and provide for and to give advantage to or or whatever but the catholics didn't do that and so they were able to integrate into society and continue the the bureaucracy in a way that just didn't happen with with um, with people that were purporting to have you know commune with God that didn't give something up. It almost feels like the Protestants tried to um, to to have that the person that was going to in between God without having the sacrifice that the that the celibacy of the Catholics had. I mean, I think it's very obvious that the the religious property was a notably larger component of uh, Catholic society than Protestant society. You know, you just look at, you know, the cathedrals of Europe, right? Or you look at, um, you know, land ownership, or you look at, um, you know, again, any, any sort of measure. And part of the reason that the monastic, you know, there is something of a very limited monastic tradition in Anglicanism, that should be emphasized. So there do exist ways, even in Protestant societies, there are people who sometimes, you know, um, you know, give up family and so on for religious reasons. Though arguably, you know, the Anglican Church, it's sort of interesting. It's like maybe, maybe the good way to describe it would be a Catholic Church with Protestant characteristics. Like maybe that's what it was historically. Um, still, there is a big difference between the two. I think it results in some interesting distinctions. Like I think that say. The Catholics did a better job as societies of maintaining the humanities in particular. I think it's not an accident that so many people on the Supreme Court, even if they're Protestant, uh, they're educated in what were Catholic founded uh, schools, right? And Catholic founded, you know, um, legal organizations. And, you know, it's not just, you know, a papist conspiracy to overthrow America as 19th century history, you know, commentators thought it was. I think it is a legitimate focus on a particular kind of institutional continuity in a thought, um, even though the legal system itself is, is of course, Protestant, it's common law. Well, and yeah. you look at like the Jesuit Catholic university system, whether it's in the U.S. or abroad, one of the things that they did was allow philosophy in. When And even when I was going to school in 2000, mm-hmm. I remember my Protestant friends, the ones that were deeply Protestant, saying philosophy is Satan's whore, right? This is this is going to allow you to, <laughs> to think about God in ways that are you're not allowed to. But learning the basics of logic and, uh, you know, philosophical thought allows you to uh, apply it in to things like jurisprudence in a way that that uh, if you've never been exposed to classical philosophical thought, you just don't have access to that way of thinking. Well, I'll say something interesting, though, since we're discussing a key social technology and I'm, you know, I will say, you know, again, 
Catholic Church is arguably the most impressive organization in human history. I don't know of any other organization with wow. the reach, power, and length. <laughs> I say this as a sociologist, right? I, I, I might say, you know, I might say things even about organizations I thought are bad. I might say, you know, things like, you know, Vladimir Lenin is one of the best revolutionaries of human history, right? That fair, fair doesn't mean point. I necessarily like Lenin, right? But I, I think if we're being objective, you know, that's that's the best description of the Catholic Church. Um, but to say something for Protestants, right, uh, the community of believers and the role of friendship through the Protestant work ethic, right? Today, we think of the Protestant work ethic as individual rather than communal. But I recommend reading, say, about the early Puritan colonies in North America. They definitely, they definitely have a communal Protestant work ethic, not just an individual one. Um, this sort of human, uh, communitarian aspect where you know, you go and you debate God with people, you pray with them, and then maybe God tells you that the correct, you know, way for you to serve him is to set up a spice trading company that goes to the East Indies. I think that's a Protestant virtue. That's not a Catholic virtue. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point, right? The the idea that uh, you would take a group of people. I mean, the Catholics weren't itching to uh, to go over to the new to the new world until until ball until they tried to go to Maryland. But before that, it was you know for hundreds of years it was the Protestants having dreams or visions to go in that direction. Right, right. And today, you know, we might not associate the spice trade with say uh, a godly impulse, but I think there's this interesting tension and contradiction with a mix of, you know, virtue, virtues and vices that drives these people where, you know, what are you coming to the new world to? Well, gold and souls. Today, we might be tempted to say, oh, it was all about the gold, but I think it was actually about both things, right? How else are you going to sponsor your voyage to India unless you sell spices? So if you can't go to India, how are you going to, you know, preach about, preach your religion and so on? So, you know, when, as we're talking about religion, it seems apparent to me that in the Western world, religion, you know, going to church has historically gone down, down, down. And, mm -hmm. uh, I, I right now have seen uh, a big rise in things like uh, astrology. So, you know, we've had various babysitters. Right. We just had a child. And uh, anytime I'm talking to a young person now, I ask them about astrology. And I am astounded <laughs> at the level of knowledge that they have about this, like, obscure thing that, I you know, I know there are 12 horoscopes, but that's there's only like that's because there's 12 months. I don't know anything I'm outside of that. Yeah. What do you think is going on in Western society that we've eschewed the the going to church and yet there's still some pull towards that uh, belief system in some sort of higher order? Mm. Well, I think the correct way to think about it is that um, it's not that we become a post-religious society. It's that the social form of religiosity changed. Part of it, I think, is a genuine move, a, genu uh, a move away from communitarianism where, again, going to church is a group activity. It's not an individual activity. If you practice it as an individual activity, sure, it might have some benefits, but really- You get bored like, and quit going. You, the only yeah, reason exactly. you go is for the community. That's right. It, exactly, exactly. That's the reason you keep going. Um, and you know, it has to be a genuine fellowship, can't be fake in various ways, can't be toxic in various ways, and so on and so on. So part of it is just atomization. Atomization, I think, is one way to think about it is that there's this big 19th century push where essentially peasants are driven into the cities. Their old way of life is completely inappropriate for cities. 
Uh, this association doesn't exist in America, but I know in Europe, you know, you might literally just, you know, peasant might just literally be something you call someone as they're a little bit uncultured or whatever, right? It might be used as, as an insult. This probably goes back to like, you know, the old feudal aristocracy versus farmers and with the city dwellers having illusions that they're basically aristocracy or maybe even better than aristocrats in some ways. Um, but still, there's a massive culture shock. I think the right way to think of it is that moving in the 19th century from tight-knit villages into a large anonymous city is a culture shock as great as joining a cult or joining the military. Completely different mode of life, completely different modes of accountability, completely no different norms of what is plain speech and what is not plain speech, uh, different norms of behavior, uh, different like industrial work and, and so on. And it was still hard work, right? Industrial society. Uh, we see this today in China as well. Uh, the Hong Kong and Taiwanese stereotype of the mainland Chinese uh, often mirrors the stereotype people had, say, of Eastern Europeans coming to Germany or to the United States in the 19th century, or earlier, you know, French peasantry making their way to Paris to work in factories and so on. So there's a big culture shock there. And the big, the, I think, unresolved tension and question of our society is, by the way, I don't think we are a post-industrial society in the sense of overcoming industry. I think we're perhaps a post-industrial society in the sense that the industrial revolution perhaps failed sociologically. It succeeded in making us vastly richer, but we actually didn't figure out what a five-generation blue-collar family might look like. We found various scrappy solutions to help one generation of blue collar workers make it to the next and then make it to the next and make it to the next. But it's always been a patchy solution. There hasn't been like a new tradition yet formed there. Uh, don't get me wrong. There are traditions of like skill, of worksmanship, of like honor. You had this in the US also an interesting semi-ethnic component where people would identify as you know Irish or Italian or create Chinatowns. And this sort of social technology would help them survive in a kind of urban environment. Uh, but I do feel that, you know, we've actually not produced a mature industrial society yet. That's my that's my view. Well, I, I agree, particularly as you frame it that way. And my my strong sense is that people are going to go to some form of church in the future. I think there is too yeah, much. Yeah, there's going to be a new communalism of some kind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because you just like right now, the the rugged individualism that was required to conquer the West is no longer, it doesn't fit. It, it doesn't make sense in the modern world. And I think that you can maybe do it for a generation or two and still be uh, riding on the, the your floating. Patrimony, the inheritance, economic and cultural. Yeah. Yeah. The, the frontier closed, right? That was a big soul searching moment in American history a hundred years ago, the frontier closing. And there were several attempts to solve this, right? Today, it might be hard to remember, but, you know, national parks were created to help preserve a sense of rugged individualism with nature. It's unclear whether they achieved that, uh, but that's why Teddy Roosevelt supported them at least. Uh, but yeah, some adaptation has to happen. It's no longer... It's no longer a period of range expansion. As I was saying earlier, if anything, we're in a period of, you know, range contraction, even if we're much wealthier, if you look at the organism, you know, you might say, why is this, you know, this organism has such a favorable environment. Why aren't they making more of themselves? The answer is in some way you've not identified the organism is not in a favorable environment. They might have the food, but maybe the food is 
subtly poisoned. Uh, they might not have predators, but perhaps they perhaps they have disease burden, or perhaps the organism, you know, perhaps these, you know, perhaps humans just don't know how to support each other and form things that would register to them as a good family making environment in a post-industrial context. Yeah, and I don't think it's a mistake that it was around 2000 years ago that uh, there was all of this, um, you know, like uh, radiation of all these different religions starting to pop up, right? right. There must have been right. conditions that were occurring that said, we got civilization to this point, but the thing that what got us here next? isn't going to get us there. Yeah. So you, you watched everything from Christianity and Islam, but many, many other churches started that just didn't succeed, right? We only have, uh, and that actually, I've never thought about well, the Manichaeans, a, the Manichaeans are gone, right? Various Gnostic sects are gone. The Zoroastrians are holding on by a thread, but they're also basically gone, right? The, the Parsi people are still Zoroastrian to this day. But there are small you know, people. This makes me wonder because, like, I think about the commodity brokers, right? There's mm -hmm. anytime you're in a commodity, it always there's always ends up being three major players and then one or two kind of offshoot players. I wonder if religion is that way too, right? There's there's always going to be um, some pressure that's going to take it down to just a few, and uh, and there are going to be three or four major players like what we're seeing right now. And I, I think we're going to see more in the future pop up because yes. the, there there's no way that uh, society's instability can move, can, can keep going without some sort of, um, I think they'll probably show up as cults first and people will, some people will really, really hate them, but some of them will survive and thrive communally in the future. Yeah. I mean, again, arguably, you know, the distinction between, you know, a, a cult and an organized religion is mostly in like how sustainable it is. Right. <laughs> So, Samo, you recently wrote an article and it uh, touched on agriculture. So I know we're running up on time, but I wanted to make sure we left a little bit of time for that since so much of the audience um, is farmers in, in today's world. So tell me a little bit about the latest article you published. Yeah, the article I wrote is uh, titled uh, Why Civilization is Much Older Than We Thought. Uh, it's an article that examines the consequences of a find called Gobekli Tepe, which is, uh, means potbelly hill. It is in uh, Southeast Turkey. Uh, what was discovered was this, you know, large enclosures with tall stone pillars, each of the stone pillars weighing 10, 10 to 20 tons. And the interesting thing about it is that it's 11,500 years old. So it means it predates the consensus origin of agriculture, right? We think agriculture is 10,000 years old. Well, um, I analyze to be brief, uh, both this site and a number of other finds. And I reached two conclusions of how we should update our view of history. The first conclusion is, um, I think agriculture isn't strictly necessary for complex societies. I think we've had both, we've had fishing villages and so on, uh, and we've had uh, much more complex societies of hunter-gatherers than previously thought. The second conclusion is, despite this observation, I think Gobekli Tepe itself must have been built by farmers. Now, it's on top of a hill. It's in a very dry region. Looking at climatological papers, this region was very dry back then. The reason in a very dry region, you might use the Tigris or Euphrates River for irrigation and then farming to feed yourself is pretty obvious. It's far away from any lake or sea that could support fishing. So the only way the estimated 500 laborers needed to build this site could have been fed was through agriculture. Why is that interesting? Well, that means we're starting to press up 
on the border of the last, you know, the end of the last ice age. If we cross that threshold, if agriculture in whatever shape existed prior to the end of the last ice age, this means our old scientific paradigm, right, in the Kuhnian sense, is broken. Our old assumption is humans didn't start farming until the climate was stable enough for a few thousand years for us to figure out farming. But not just Gobekli Tepe, other sites such as the Ohalo site in uh, near the Lake of Galilee that's been dug up by uh, you know, Israeli archaeologists, <clears throat> that site features early farming. Now they call it proto-farming, but you know, it's the planting and harvesting of plants. And it's a small scale, they say, but really the scale isn't what matters. That site is 23,000 years old. So that definitely breaks the paradigm. Right. And so this is something that I have talked about and read about extensively about the the current philosophy, which I kind of feel like we were reverting all the way back to the very beginning um, where we were talking about the continental drift, because the current idea is agriculture is 10,000 years old and exactly. we didn't even get bread until 8,000 years ago or maybe even even early, sooner than this. And uh, so to push it this back. This is evidence against it. Yeah, this is this is like a mind shattering concept, right? It's one that much of what we believe and and then all of the uh, the knock on effects of of saying, well, no, it's actually older than 10,000, like entire schools of thought will just shred in a, in, well, in a moment. Gonna- it's going to take some time. It's going to take new finds. For now, you know, if you write a paper about 23,000 year agriculture, you carefully use the term proto agriculture because it's too old to just call it agriculture. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm joking, but I do feel that they have to be colleagues have to tiptoe around each other. Now, of course, you know, I don't blame the um, archaeologists themselves in a way there's not that much money in archaeology. Shock, right? There's not that much funding for labor-intense digs and so on. So, of course, discoveries are few and far between. But we have to think about the consequence of every confirmed discovery. And remember that whenever we find something from the past, it is the floor, not the ceiling of past achievement. This is both true of technologies as it's true of uh, other things, such as domestication of animals or other types of milestones. Now, agriculture, if it's not 10,000 years old, but 20,000 years old, why not 50? Why not 60? Why not 200,000? So if I were to make a bet, and I did operationalize a bet to any qualified challenger, uh, and my bet was that in 20 years, we will find evidence of at least one uh, dense farming-fed settlement, right? that exceeds a few thousand people that is 20,000 years old. So as old as the Ohalo site, right? Uh, And that's an interesting bet in its own right. But, you know, if you ask me, I think humans have been farming for a very long time, maybe from our very beginning. And just it was the case that farming was one of the modes of sustenance. And we would go between farming, fishing, hunting, and gathering. Even if you think of medieval farmers or early antiquity, hunting, and gathering was an important part of farm life. Like my um, my my great uh, my great grandfather was a farmer, and my grandfather would always say how to go. You know, I'm from Slovenia originally. How to go into the forest every fall and collect a lot of chestnuts, and how those chestnuts proved like an insignificant food source for about two to three weeks. Now, in the American context, I think there's a blight that's destroyed chestnut trees, but I'm sure you can think of, say, hunting and so on, and how this, um, this you know, it isn't that we just exited nature 
and started doing pure farming. Rather, farming was a part of our relationship with nature. We would clear out some forest, we would farm, but we would still go to the forest, you know, pick, pick what the forest had to offer. So I think that's actually human history rather than cavemen. I think that's the actual Stone Age looked like that. And I think that's a that's a revolution in thought. So when you put this uh, hypothesis out there in the world of academia, where we started talking about before, how was it received by your non-contemporaries because you didn't stay in academia? In, in academia? Well, I, I think they appreciated me calling for them receiving more funding and they engaged with the ideas, sometimes with minor criticism. Uh, but, you know, I wrote the and researched the article quite thoroughly. So uh, they mostly were like, oh, OK, well, this is plausible, but I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> no one's no one's called me an ancient aliens guy yet, and I'm happy well, about that. It always it always is, takes work to present new ideas. Well, <laughs> and is your bet is that on the the long nows long bet uh, platform? Well, it it will be as soon as I find a qualified challenger. Uh, please, like any if anyone's listening, go read uh, the article, and if you have a relevant background in you know archaeology or history or whatever, uh, contact me. I'd be happy. I'd be happy to set that up. Yes. If, well, this is absolutely uh, phenomenal, Samo. I would have you on any time at all. Um, so uh, just know that I'm going to be writing and calling again to do more. Uh, if people wanted to learn more about you, read your articles, learn more about your business, how would they go about doing that? Well, uh, they can visit my website, uh, samoburja.com. So S-A-M-O-B-O-R-J-A.com or find me on Twitter. Um, my website links to all the articles I've ever written under essays. It also features a few interviews and has links to my other material. Um, you know, you can also visit the Bismarck website. Um, we mostly work for private clients, so we only have uh, released two papers since the majority of our reports are client-facing. But, uh, you know, for some of the reports, we've, uh, we have permission to publish. So you might find there uh, a paper by my colleague, Ben Lendo Taylor, on machine tools. Or, and you can find a paper on the role of scientists in decision-making uh, with the creation of the atomic bomb and the policies that followed it. And that's uh, one I co-authored with my, my former colleague, uh, Zach Lorangus. And you are doing something really unique, which is uh, you're publishing a manuscript or you've posted it as you've been yes. writing it. So instead of waiting for it to be published, You've started putting it out and I have read it. It is uh, absolutely fantastic. And I can tell you that it has prompted me to um, call meetings with people I'm on the board of directors with to, to do all kinds of things, because I think the the writing is very uh, prescient and, and really deeply appreciated. So I hope you keep writing, Samo. Thank you. Thank you very much. And part of the reason I write at the philosophy of why I'm putting it online first, my philosophy is that we're all kind of still living in the past. Look, it's 2021. Show your draft, show your work. First off, it's proof that it's your idea, even if someone copies you. Secondly, all the critique you'll receive improves it. It gives you time to improve it before the first print edition. You know, we no longer live in an immutable world. We live in a world where, you know, Wikipedia is viable. Why not apply this philosophy to writing books? I really like that. I've been writing a book for a few months now, and maybe I will give that a shot. That's nerve wracking. Well, Samo. This has been uh, fantastic. Um, I'm really glad you came on. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for checking out this podcast. I loved talking with Samo. 
If you've stayed along this far, you might be interested in joining the Articulate Ventures network that I talked about before. You can always do that by going to network.articulate.ventures. Also, if you've been around in the, um, this whole time, you may know that my schedule for giving speeches is starting to book up. I am going to be traveling all over Arkansas, South Dakota, Tennessee, and that's just in the next few weeks. But if your organization is looking for somebody to come in and talk about ideas that will push your group forward, get them excited, and help them figure out how to do things like overcome the the your critics' worst arguments about you, how to build relationships with a community that you've just joined, and even talking about ideas of succession planning, I would love to hear from you. You can learn more about hiring me as a speaker by going to vancecrow.com. All right. If you want to hear anything about the show, the, the notes also have things that were written by Samo, and I hope you'll check them out. We'll talk with you next week. <laughs>